And we're going to pick up this morning, I want to talk some more about uh, the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit at work within us. But I want to backpedal a little bit because, uh, you know, it was fitting with Resurrection Sunday that we would focus on uh, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in raising Jesus from the dead. But that's not really the beginning of the story, right? The beginning of the story of the Spirit and the Spirit's work uh, predates the life and ministry and certainly the resurrection of Jesus by uh, many, many years. And there's a lot of background uh, for us to dig into to really understand the full picture of who the Holy Spirit is and what God would have his Spirit do in and through the lives of his people. In fact, I want to begin this morning with an illustration, uh, and I have to give credit where it's due. I, I, I steal this, or borrow it, if you will, uh, and I'll quote directly from a wonderful little book Um, perhaps my favorite book by Billy Graham, called The Holy Spirit. And uh, you might not know that Billy Graham wrote a book about the Holy Spirit, but he did. He wrote a lot of books. Most of them were about salvation and the salvation message. Of course, that was his focus and his specialty as an evangelist. But one of the reasons why I love this particular book by Billy Graham is that he's so known for his proclamation of the gospel and talking all about Jesus and the salvation that's available to us through faith in Christ, that people wouldn't typically think of him as someone you know, who was really focused on uh, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet he wrote a book on that very subject. And he begins the book with what I found to be a very compelling uh, illustration about the Spirit. He says, and this is quoting um, There's an old American Indian legend that tells of an Indian who came down from the mountains and saw the ocean for the first time. Just imagine the scene, if you can. An Indian living in the mountains comes down from the mountains and sees for the first time in his life the ocean. Awed by the scene, Billy writes, He requested a quart jar. As he waded into the ocean and filled the jar, he was asked what he intended to do with it. Matter of fact, I'll just interrupt the story here to share with you a little jar. It's not quite a quart. I think it's more like a pint, but uh, you get the idea, right? A jar. The Indian wades into the ocean, fills the jar, and he's asked what what he intends to do with it. And here's his reply. Back in the mountains, back in the mountains, he replied, my people have never seen the great water. I will carry this jar to them so that they can see what it's like. Now stop and think about that. And, you know, if you're if your thoughts are anything like mine, you quickly recognize, right, that, that the water in a little jar like this can hardly begin to represent the power of the ocean, the depth and breadth of the ocean contained in a jar. I mean, you can see the water, and of course the water is consistent There's something about its character and its quality that is representative of the larger reality. But what's contained in a little jar cannot begin to represent the reality of the ocean. 
You have to see it and experience it for yourself. And so Billy, uh, Billy Graham writes, attempting to write a book on so vast a subject as the Holy Spirit is like trying to capture the ocean in a quart jar. Isn't that beautiful? Attempting to write a book on so vast a subject as the Holy Spirit is like trying to capture the ocean in a quart jar. The subject is so infinite and our minds are so finite. And I I love that because I feel that way even as I begin to teach and preach on this subject. I feel the same challenge, the same reality confronts me, right? There's so much to be said There's so much to understand. There's so much to the life and ministry of the Spirit that what I can share with you, not just in one message, but even in a series of eight messages over two months' time, is just the beginning. I I can barely begin to capture for you the wonder and the power and the majesty and the depth and the breadth of what the ministry of God's Spirit is really about. So bear with me if you feel like, wait a minute, he didn't talk about this or that, or you know, if there's something that, you, uh, that you're hoping that I'll address, maybe I'll come to it over the weeks you know, uh, that are yet in front of us. But uh, this morning, what I want to begin to do is to just backpedal with you through the Old Testament and give you a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the Spirit's work before what we read about in Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. So, uh, we're going to look at a variety of Scripture passages. There's not one in particular that we're going to focus on. I want to take you on a little tour this morning. And uh, we don't have time to tour the whole Old Testament and every reference to the Spirit. Uh, There are dozens of them, and that would take us much longer than the time that we have But I want to give you a couple insights, two key insights from what we see and read about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So here's the first one. Would it surprise you to learn that the Holy Spirit is first mentioned in Genesis 1, verse 2? Right from the very beginning right from the very beginning of God's account of his interactions with humankind, right from the very beginning of God's account of creation, the Holy Spirit is present and at work. So here's really the first takeaway you're going to, I hope you'll see with me as we look at a few passages in just a moment. Beginning with creation and throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as the active presence of God who carries out The Father's will. This is part of the job description, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is portrayed as the active presence of God who carries out the Father's will. Last week, you might recall, I quoted a little vineyard booklet, and uh, I have some more copies available for you in the back this morning if you didn't get one last Sunday. It's called uh, The Holy Spirit and Easter. And it's really a reflection on the involvement of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead. And those are available at the back of the worship center. If you didn't get one last Sunday, I'd encourage you to pick one up on your way out today. 
One of the great little insights from that booklet that I quoted last week and want to refresh your memory on is the notion that, that the Holy Spirit is how God gets things done. That's such a great way to capture the essence of the Spirit's work and ministry. The Holy Spirit is literally how God gets things done. So what do we mean when we say that? Well, the, the Holy Spirit is the presence and power of God at work on the earth, accomplishing whatever the, whatever the Father wants and directs. In other words, if, if we were to write up a job description for the Spirit, the first thing on it, I think, would be to carry out the Father's will. There's always complete agreement, always complete consistency, always complete unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So maybe you'll recall that Jesus himself said about his own ministry that he never did anything uh, beyond what he saw the Father doing, right? I only do what I see the Father doing, Jesus said. And of course, everything that Jesus did, as we talked about last Sunday, was done under the direction and anointing and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So even in the life of Jesus, we see this complete unity, this complete partnership, this complete inner working between the three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So what I want you to see then is, as we focus our attention together on the Spirit's work in creation, is uh, that the Spirit is present right from the outset of what we might refer to as human history. And so let's take a look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to see here with me the ministry of God's Spirit when it first began. The Bible tells us that all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, were at work together in creating the universe. So while, you know, as we read Genesis 1, while it seems that the focus is particularly on the Father, we know that the Spirit and the Son were also at work with the Father in creating all that they made. So we might tend to think of it as the Father's work, but uh, Colossians 1 indicates that the Son himself was at work as well. And in Genesis 1, verse 2, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit had a role to play. So here's what we read, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So here's what I want you to consider. Think about this, right? The, the story goes on, and you're probably familiar with it. Seven days are involved in the creation account. Six days, God creates things. On the seventh day, he rests. On those six days that he's creating things, there's a chorus that we see throughout Genesis chapter 1. God says, and it is, right? He speaks things into existence. His word, the word of God goes forth, and things happen. Creation takes place at the word of God. And there's really no other mention in Genesis chapter 1 of the Spirit but the one that we find right at the beginning in, cha- in uh, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here's the question. Why does that matter? I mean, why would we, why would, why would we even be told? If it's all the Father's work and the Father's word that does, you know, uh, in which the power to create things is, uh, is present, why are we even told that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters before the first word is spoken and things come to be? What was the Spirit of God doing hovering over the waters? Well, here's my theory. He was waiting for the word of God to be spoken, for the command of God to go forth so that he could enact what the Father spoke. It was the Spirit's role, I believe, to actually do the creating. The Father spoke, and then the Spirit moved to bring it about. So the Spirit was waiting to carry out the Word of God, to make it so, if I can use a little reference to Star Trek for those of you that are familiar with number one. Here's the key, right, to appreciating the significance of this reference. This is only the second verse of the Bible. The second verse of the Bible. And already the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God has made its first appearance. And note that this mention, I think, could have been omitted if it were unimportant or insignificant, leaving our focus on the Father instead. But it wasn't omitted. And the reason is this. God wanted his people to know from, from the very beginning that it was the Holy Spirit that carries out the will and the word of the Father. There's a partnership between them. And whenever the Father wants something done, the Spirit gets it done. This verse reminds us of some very important things about the nature of the Holy Spirit. It reminds us that the Spirit is separate from the Father, but also pre-existent with the Father. Pre-existent, eternal, a part of the, the Trinitarian Godhead. It reminds us as well that the Spirit of God is not some impersonal or inanimate power, like some force of nature. It's relational. It's listening and responding to the Word of God. And I won't you know, digress here into a long explanation of the Trinity. We'll save that for another occasion. But, but I find it very significant that already in the second verse of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is not only identified, but is on the move, at work, waiting to respond to the Father's command. Now, there's another thing that's really fascinating about this reference as well. If you're familiar at all with Hebrew and the Hebrew language, you might know that the word used here in Genesis 1 verse 2 is the Hebrew word ruach. And you have to get that good little guttural sound in there if you want to say it right, ruach. The phrase in Hebrew is ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, literally was hovering or 
in some translations, vibrating over the spirit of the waters. And that word ruach can literally be translated and is translated in other occasions as wind or breath or spirit. It can refer to the spirit of a man or in this case, clearly, because it's paired with the word Elohim, it refers to the spirit of God, not the spirit of a a man or a person. So whenever this word, ruach, is, is placed together with the word Elohim, a common Hebrew title for God, together they are always translated the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim. And the word Ruach is used this way numerous times throughout the Old Testament. So let's not mistaken, you know, mistakenly think that the Holy Spirit was not present or not working before Jesus showed up on the scene. The Holy Spirit's ministry is not you know, resigned to the New Testament alone. The Spirit of God was at work from the very beginning to carry out the will of the Father. Now, fast forward with me just one chapter here to the, the greater uh, explanation, if you will, of the creation of man and woman in Genesis chapter 2, and you'll see another insightful reference. Genesis 2, verse 7. We read this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed or blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Again, use your imagination here, your sanctified imagination. Try to picture what this might have looked like and how this worked. Somehow God creates Adam, we're told, out of the dust of the earth and then breathes into him the breath of life. And he comes alive. Here in this more detailed account of how God created mankind, we find a very significant reference to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of hidden a little bit, but it's there. And you have to see that reference by reflecting on some other explanations that are given in the Old Testament of the reality that's described in Genesis 2, verse 7. In fact, let me share with you a quote about this connection that helps highlight how the Spirit is at work in Genesis 2, verse 7. This is from uh, a website called gotquestions.org, a Christian resource website. The writer says, God's ruach is the source of life. The ruach of God is the one who gives life to all of creation. We could say that God's ruach has created every other non-divine ruach that exists. All living creatures owe the breath of life to the creative spirit of God. Moses stated this truth explicitly in Numbers 27 verse 16 when he said, God gives breath, ruach, to all living things. Likewise, Job also understood this truth as well. Quoting from Job 27 verse 3, Job said, as long as I have life within me, the breath the Ruach of God in my nostrils. And likewise, Job's friend Elihu says in Job 33 verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So what's the commonality between those three references? Numbers 27, Job 27, and Job 33 all speak together of what's described in Genesis 2 verse 7. That it's the Spirit of God 
who breathes life and gives us the breath of life as human beings. It's the Spirit of God that sustains our life, our breath. Our very breath is a gift from the Spirit of God. This is fascinating, isn't it? Again, Job 33.4, look at this reference on the screen behind me. The Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isn't that a beautiful insight into one dimension of the ministry of God's Spirit? And if that was true, of course, for Job's friend, Elihu, it's, it's true for us. It's true for all of us. What this means is that every breath we take sustains our life and every breath literally originated with the Spirit of God. So in a sense, the work of God's Spirit is evident in the life of every human being even if they refuse to acknowledge the reality of who God is. Not only is every person made in the image or likeness of God, every person has Ruach, breath, because the Ruach of God has given it to them. So this is only the first example. Right away, right out of the gate in Genesis, the first example of the Spirit's work in human history. And it comes to us at the very outset of the account of God's interaction with humankind which reminds us of how important the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit of God was in partnership and on assignment from the Father to create all that the Father and Son willed and spoke into being. And furthermore, the very height of God's creativity was applied when he made human beings in his own image and gave them the breath of life from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's fascinating, right? This is a case, of course, and there are other examples like this in Scripture, where we can say the Holy Spirit was assigned a task from the Father and got it done, right? As I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is how God gets things done. That's a great way to think of the Spirit's work. But here's what I want you to recognize, right? Sometimes, sometimes God, God wants to get something done and he just does it himself. Dispatches the Spirit or signs the Spirit and the Spirit accomplishes the will of God without any trouble. But there are other occasions where God decides, for some mysterious reason, that he wants to partner with human beings to accomplish his will. And so in those cases then, the job of the Holy Spirit is not just to get it done, it's to communicate with us what God wants to do so that we can partner in accomplishing God's will. This is what we might call the ministry of the Spirit in revelation and inspiration. The Spirit of the living God reveals the will of God to the people of God, so that we can partner with God to do what he wants done. 
So in this case, again, the distinction is that the, that the Spirit doesn't just do what needs to be done. The Spirit communicates with us on God's behalf so that we can partner with God to do what needs to be done. So this brings us then to a second realm of the Spirit's work. Beyond just accomplishing the will of the Father without our help, sometimes God uses the Spirit to communicate to us what he wants done. And so here's a, really the second takeaway I'd put before you, the summary of, by way of summary of what the Spirit's work is all about. Throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is also portrayed as the one who reveals and communicates the Father's will to people. Reveals and communicates the Father's will to people. So as we survey the Old Testament then, what we find are a variety of isolated incidents where, where the Spirit is said to have come upon someone in a tangible way for specific purposes. This is often referred to throughout Scripture as the anointing of God's Spirit. And I could list you know, numerous examples for you. This is throughout the Old Testament. But instead of simply listing them one after the next after the next what I want to do is just give you one particular example and unpack it with you. So let's consider the supreme, what I would call one of the supreme examples of the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament, which is in the life of David, King David. The Spirit's revelation and inspiration in the life of David are exemplary. Not that he was perfect, he had his faults, he made his mistakes. But David was anointed by the Spirit of God. And under that anointing, David did things and said things that enacted the will of God and communicated the will of God more broadly. So to see this most clearly, I want you to uh, look with me at several different references, but we're going to begin with David's anointing by the prophet Samuel. Take a look at 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13. Again, a familiar story to many of us. Perhaps you've read it before or heard it taught on. It's a great story. I love in particular the way that Samuel thinks he's got it figured out. He thinks it's going to be one of the other brothers uh, to whom he's introduced. And uh, Samuel has his own idea of what the future king of Israel should look like. And of course, they all parade before him. And in each case, the Lord says to Samuel, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. All the brothers make their appearance, but one. David, the little brother, the shepherd boy who's out tending the flocks, not even worth presenting to the prophet because nobody would have expected that he would be the one chosen. And so here's what we read in 1 Samuel 16. David is brought in from the fields. He appears before Samuel. And the Lord says to Samuel, uh, here's the account. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And here's the key phrase right here. Listen to this. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
from that day on, from the day he was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went on to Ramah. So what do you see in this reference? When he was anointed king of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In other words, the oil Samuel poured over David's head was symbolic of something even greater. The anointing wasn't so much about the oil. The oil was representative of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that got poured out upon David's life that day. So the, the oil then represented the anointing of God's Spirit so that David could serve and act and speak on God's behalf. Amazing. Now at this point in our study, I should pause for just a moment to specify something important for you to notice, which is that being anointed by the Spirit to serve God was an not entirely uncommon under the Old Covenant and throughout the Old Testament, but it was more uncommon than it is now. What I mean to say by that is that somehow the anointing of God's Spirit, this description of God's Spirit coming upon a person, was more limited back then than it is now. And we'll talk about that some more over the weeks to come. But what I want you to recognize is that throughout the Old Testament, this type of experience was not uncommon for those who were called and anointed to serve God as prophets, priests, or kings. Prophets, priests, or kings, the three offices of leadership that God gave to people in the Old Testament. And so whenever someone was called and gifted and anointed to serve in one of those roles, we can understand that the Spirit of God came upon them to help them serve in that role or that purpose. What we see in their experience is that the work of God's Spirit involved inspiring people like that and empowering them to speak and or to serve on God's behalf. Prophets, priests, and kings all experience the anointing of God's Spirit upon their lives. So then, turning our attention back to David again, fast forward now to the end of his life. And I want you to see a fascinating reference in 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are David's dying words. Interesting to note what he says and what's said about him on this occasion as he's about to pass from this life. 2 Samuel 23, 1-4. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. What did he say on his deathbed? Here's what he said. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain 
that brings grass from the earth. These are David's dying words. And I believe that what he says, particularly in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue, doesn't just apply to these particular words that he spoke on his deathbed. He's describing his life in the Spirit. He's describing his, his role as God's king and prophet. And he's really describing what it was that enabled him, the anointing that enabled him to write you know, most of the book of Psalms. So what we see in these words is that it was the Spirit's anointing that worked in and through David's life so that he could speak and write on God's behalf. He was anointed so that he could give inspired utterances by the Holy Spirit. And the implication here is not just that David's final words on his deathbed were inspired by the Spirit, but that many of the words spoken throughout his lifetime were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even the reference to Israel's songs, right? Which is what we now know as the book of Psalms, indicates that the Spirit's inspiration was at work throughout David's life. And then David explains this experience in his own own words, saying, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. What a beautiful description of the Spirit's work in people's lives. And if you stop and think about the mysterious wonder of this reality, what this means is that God spoke through David so that God's will could be communicated by David under the revelation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why would God do this? I mean, it seems crazy, doesn't it? Why would God subject himself to speaking through a person? when he could just speak directly. I, I don't know. I can't explain that. Other than to say that I, I, just, I, I believe that God loves us so deeply that he wants to partner with us and he wants to use us as his servants so that we can speak and act on his behalf and partner with him so that his will is accomplished on the face of the earth. And the way that we do that is under and by the power of God's Spirit at work in our lives. Now, we're talking about David here. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Covenant. But understand that this is all foreshadowing, right? And what we're going to come to in due process here over the next couple of weeks as we continue our study together on this theme is the reality that There were many prophecies spoken under the inspiration of the Spirit about the outpouring of the Spirit that was to come by which all of us would have access to the anointing that we read about in David's life. So David, in essence, became God's mouthpiece or God's messenger. He was anointed and empowered by the Spirit to serve other purposes as well, but one of his primary roles was to speak on God's behalf. His words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God revealed to him his will by the Holy Spirit so that David could understand what God wanted done and then communicate it to others. So let me give you another example of how this is described 
uh, in Scripture, and it's the fascinating example of, of the, the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Again, if you know anything about the story of David's life, you'll know that he wanted, it was in his heart, to build a temple for God. But God said to him, no, you're not the one to do that. There's too much blood on your hands because of all your involvement in, in war. Uh, as a great warrior, I want your son, Solomon, to be the one that builds the temple. But what God did do for David is to give him the plans for how it was to be done, how it was to be built. And he did it, we're told, specifically by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Chronicles 28, 11 to 13. Here we're being told about the passing on of the plans from David to Solomon. They sit down together, father and son, and David's explaining to Solomon, this is what you need to do and this is how you're supposed to do it. This wasn't just David's good idea. Listen to what's said. David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. He gave him instructions for the divisions of the priests and the Levites and for all the work of serving in the temple of the Lord, as well as for all the articles to be used in its service. So just stop and think about that description and what it tells us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everything that was to be done in the temple that Solomon was to build, including all the instructions for how it was to be built, what it was to be made of, and how the priests and Levites were to administer all of the rituals that were carried out in the temple, all of that was given to David as a revelation from the Holy Spirit. I love the way that Mark Batterson talks about this in several of his books. He uses a phrase, and I've shared this before. It's a, it's a beautiful insight. He says, there's a difference between having a good idea and having a God idea. Right? The temple and how to build it wasn't David's good idea. It was a God idea that was planted in David's mind by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave David the plans for how to build the temple. And then David, in turn, had to share those plans with Solomon so that Solomon could actually carry them out. So again, as we, as we think about these examples and consider their significance, understand God is partnering with human beings by the ministry of his Spirit to reveal his will and to speak his word so that things can get done in partnership with human beings. And the partnership happens specifically through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, revealing the heart of God, revealing the will of God, revealing the word of God, so that we can partner with him. Again, as we think about these examples, bear in mind that during this era in human history, the Spirit was given to people or came upon people more sporadically than it does now. People like David were anointed by the Spirit to serve in the specific role of prophet, priest, or king. But David's not alone here. Like What I'm saying is that David is emblematic. David is an example 
a supreme example of the way the anointing of the Spirit worked under the Old Covenant. And, and we could point to many other examples in the Old Testament, including all the prophets who were anointed by the Spirit to speak the word of the Lord. That's how it works, right? That's what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is all about. So what's particularly interesting to me about the example of David is that his partnership with the Spirit, his anointing in the Spirit, is referred to several times now in the New Testament, and it's described for us and explained for us quite specifically. In fact, the first reference I'll point your attention to comes from Jesus himself. Jesus himself, Matthew 22, Jesus refers back to the life of David and tells us specifically that David was speaking under the direction, the anointing, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 45. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. So he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's almost comical, the way that Jesus played with the Pharisees. But what's fascinating about this particular reference is that Jesus himself acknowledges that David spoke by the Spirit, in the Spirit. Now, uh, look at another one with me from Acts chapter 1. The day of Pentecost. Peter stands up. The Holy Spirit's poured out. Peter stands up to deliver a message about Jesus and to explain what's happening on the day of Pentecost. And here's a part of his explanation. Acts 1, 15 to 17. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. This is actually before the Holy Spirit's poured out. The disciples are gathered together, talking, praying, waiting for the promise of Jesus to be fulfilled, trying to figure out what to do. And of course, you'll recall from the story that they end up replacing Judas with another disciple. In the process, Peter's explaining the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. In other words, David prophesied about things that were to take place in the future regarding the life and ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter's now looking back on it and recognizing in the writing of David, in the Psalms of David, that there were prophetic words about God's plan for the future. And he's saying David spoke through the Spirit to reveal the plans of God, the purposes of God. One last reference just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. 
we read this. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's a quote from one of David's Psalms. Again, look at the descriptor. You spoke, this is speaking of God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, David. What, what I'm hoping you're seeing here in this multitude of references, without overwhelming you, is, is that the Spirit of God anointed David to speak on God's behalf. So the Spirit of God was present in the words of David. The Spirit of God was working through the words of David, speaking to people, to others, to us, through the inspired words of David. The words of David weren't just the words of David. Sometimes they were the words of God, the inspired words of God. Inspired in the heart and mind of David, by the Holy Spirit. That's a picture of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. So, I want to close with just um, two last references, really quick ones from later in the New Testament. And they don't apply specifically to the life of David. They apply more broadly than that. But they would include the words of David. Peter, the same Peter that we just read of in Acts you know, chapter 1, uh, explaining how David was inspired by the Spirit, Peter went on to write two letters of his own, First and Second Peter. And in those two letters, in each one, Peter says something really insightful about the way that the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit work. I want you to see this because it really sums up everything I've been trying to, to communicate and share with you this morning that's exemplified in David's life. What I'm saying is what was exemplified in David's life wasn't limited to David's life. It's just exemplified. Everything that David experienced was also experienced by others and is now available to us. So 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Peter says, concerning this salvation, he's writing, of course, of the salvation available to us through faith in Jesus, The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So in these three verses, there are two references to the Spirit speaking the word of God to people so that they could convey it then to others. First, Peter's saying, all the prophets... All of them, including David, spoke what they spoke and prophesied about the future and God's plan, God's will, under the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 12, those who are now preaching the gospel, including him, are also speaking 
by the anointing and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what I want you to see in those verses is a transition, right? In the Old Testament, it was the prophets who spoke under the anointing of the Spirit. But now, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the Spirit is given more broadly. The anointing of the Spirit is available. And even those who speak the gospel, even those who preach the gospel, are declaring the truth of God, the heart of God, and the will of God under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for bringing the kids back in. You guys can find your seats with your families if you haven't done that already. We're just about done here. Now pair that with Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1, the next letter, the second letter that he wrote. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, you know, these weren't guys that just kind of looked at what was happening and thought, hmm, this is what I make of it. This is what I think of it. This is my idea, or these are my thoughts. No, Peter says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There it is. This is Peter's description of how prophecy works. And particularly, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets. But again, as we'll see over the weeks to come, the reality that he's describing applies more broadly than that. And we'll continue to talk about the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit on all of us and its availability to all of us. But for now, what I want you to see is the paradigm. I want you to see the examples. I want you to see the model. I want you to understand the way that Scripture portrays the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit consistently throughout the Old Testament. In some cases, the Spirit just carries out the will of the Father. And in other cases, the Spirit communicates the will of the Father to people so that we can carry it out. That's the heart of the Spirit's ministry in people's lives. That's what the anointing of the Spirit accomplishes. In the end, it's all about getting what God wants done, done. It's about the will of the Father. The Spirit is always partnering to accomplish the will of the Father in our lives. But sometimes we have to partner too. At the very least, we have to listen and understand when God's speaking so that we can pay closer attention. And when God does speak and we recognize it's him speaking, we have to obey. We have to partner. We have to, we have to submit. We have to say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. I want to close with just a, a short illustration. And uh, it's going to date me, but that's okay. You all know how, how old I am anyway. Um, I remember from my younger days, uh, back when I was about the age of my own kids now, a commercial. Actually, it was a series of commercials that were commonplace on television back then. And uh, some of you will remember these as well. They're, they're the series of commercials that were put out by a brokerage called E.F. Hutton. Right? Raise your hand if you remember the E.F. Hutton commercials. Okay? Everybody who didn't raise their hand is... 
under 40 years old. Um, I'll just describe for you, without playing an example, how these commercials work. There was a whole series of commercials that were put out by this financial brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton. And basically, the storyline of all the commercials was the same. They were just different settings, different people, different examples of the same thing. People are going about their business. In one commercial that I watched on YouTube, just to refresh my memory, um, there were two runners. They're running down a, a, a sidewalk together. And in this particular case, um, they're having a conversation, and one runner says to the other runner, well, my broker, E.F. Hutton, says, and of course, if you've seen the commercials, you'll know that the commonality between all of them throughout the series was that whenever somebody mentions the name E.F. Hutton, everybody stops whatever they're doing to listen, Right? And so these guys are running down the sidewalk, you know, having this nice little conversation, and the one runner says to the other, well, my broker, E.F. Hutton, says, and not only do they stop, but everything around them stops. Everybody in the picture stops whatever they're doing so that they can tune in and listen to what E.F. Hutton has to say. And the tagline at the end of every single E.F. Hutton commercial went like this. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Friends, that's a picture of what it should be like for us when the Holy Spirit talks. Would to God that we would listen that closely, that we would tune in that intently, that we would pay attention that closely whenever we sense the Spirit of the Lord about to speak. Would to God that when we open the Bible and read, we would recognize we're not just reading the words of men, We're reading the inspired revelation of God himself. These are the thoughts of God. These are the words of God revealed to us, written for our benefit. Shouldn't that change how we listen? We have access now, too. What I'm saying is we have access to the same spirit by which David spoke. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is the same Spirit that spoke through David to inspire all the Psalms. And it's the same Spirit that we've now been given so that we too can speak on God's behalf. Now granted, the the scriptures are, the canon of Scripture is closed, right? We're not going to speak and suddenly find that there's a new book added to the Bible. I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is that the same Spirit now lives within us, dwells within us, speaks to us, and speaks through us to others. What an incredible wonder that is. What an incredible mystery that is. This, my friends, is just the beginning of what God's Spirit is all about. Let's pray.